Basically, as soon as uh, Halloween decorations, you know, you see them in Coles and Woolies, as soon as they go off the shelf, you know Christmas season is about to start. Uh, Mariah Carey, Michael Bublé come out of their cave where they've been hibernating over the year to come and play us some tunes. Christmas trees start to pop up all over the place. Houses down your street start to get covered in Christmas lights. Uh, and that's been the case for our street. In fact, as you drive down our street, there are all these amazing displays, especially our two neighbours on either side. They've got lights right from the front of their roof all the way down the front of their lawn. They've even got these inflatable Santas that are like the size of a human being. It's amazing. And then right in the middle is this dark black void of nothingness. And that is our house. Because <laughs> we ain't got anything up. And every time I'm coming home at night, I'm always reminded, oh yeah, we don't have anything up. Uh, the Christmas season is kind of one of those remaining vestiges of Christian influence, right, on our culture. The last little bit of tradition, which to, you know, to some extent has been definitely hyper-commercialized and really over the top. But the story of Christmas is something that our culture really doesn't grasp. They really don't understand, and they really kind of leave to the side. They really don't understand the history, the meaning, the purpose. They think it's merely just this happy tale of a baby being born with some nice angels kind of coming in, doing some nice little things. A little star shows up, some wise guys, some shepherds. But no, Christmas is not that at all. Christmas is a story of insurrection. It is a story of revolution. It is a radical message that the rightful king has landed in his world. And that all heaven and on earth truly belong to him. And that no rival king can possibly match his splendor, majesty, authority, and glory. And so today, I've got three points that I want to share with you. My first point is the king born in history. My second point is the king born of heaven. My third point is the king born to reign. So let's get into it. The first point, the king born in history. Luke chapter 2 from verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Well, our tale starts with a decree coming out from Caesar Augustus, the emperor of Rome, requiring that every person, every subject of his must be registered in a census. And they were registered for the purposes of taxation. And like any good government official, he wanted to get his hands on every ounce of coin that he could possibly get his grimy little hands on. And so when he sends out this great uh, census, Everyone obeys, because if you know anything about Augustus, you know you are dealing with a bad man. You are dealing with a hardcore guy. His name, Augustus, means magnificent one, excellent one, transcendent one. 
A title that no one was going to challenge because up until this point, Augustine, uh, Augustus, my mistake, has murdered 300 members of the Roman Senate. No one within the realms of authority were going to challenge him. No one was going to defy him. He was ruthless. He was cunning. He was cruel. And when he declared a census, it was obeyed to the last man, to the last woman. Didn't matter whether you were pregnant. Didn't matter what your circumstances were. You get to your hometown and you register. That's what you had to do. And so when Joseph and Mary hear this decree, all the way in the far-flung regions of Galilee and Nazareth, they don't question for a second that they need to obey this message. And they jump on their donkey and they travel the treacherous trek all the way down to Bethlehem, the home, the ancestral home of Joseph. And this is a serious undertaking. They have to battle traffic, weather, storm, bandits, all sorts of treacherous things on the road, and perhaps a little bit of exhaustion. And you can imagine this heavily pregnant Mary, first child, very young, would have been quite distraught. She would have been quite terrified. And because of this census, there's been a massive influx of visitors into Bethlehem. And so when they arrive, there's no room for them. There's no one to take care of them. They're all on their own. They're forced into this little stable. And Mary gives birth quite dangerously. Back home in Nazareth, she would have probably had experienced midwives from her family, from her area, from her community that would have come and helped her give birth. But here in Bethlehem, she is all on her own. She gives birth in a stable, the only place they had for them. And she places Jesus in a manger. Now, we really should just translate that as feeding trough because that's exactly what it is. That's where the animals ate their food out of. That's where the animals drank their water out of, this little manger. Here he is, the grand entrance to the descendant of David, the great king, the coming of the eternal king, the savior of the world, born into absolute obscurity, wrapped in swaddling cloths, little strips of cloths ripped from a garment and placed around him to keep him warm, compelled to leave home by a dictator and residing with the filth of animals. And so we have two kings, one pompous, one full of prestige and ceremony and applause. who was obeyed at an instant and one who did not have enough room in the inn and was born into a feeding trough. But note this. This little baby who was born in the feeding trough in that stable would change the course of human history that Augustus Caesar couldn't even possibly imagine, couldn't even possibly attain any level of influence that he did. And Luke, the gospel writer, he wants us to grasp the reality of this situation. He is presenting to us history. There is no other way to interpret this. Either this happened and Luke is telling you the truth or he is a liar and he is telling you falsity. This either really occurred and if it did, it transformed the history of the world as we know it. The Emperor Augustus did not know that he had just unknowingly ensured that prophecy would be fulfilled, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. This magnificent one, right? Augustus was just a pawn in the hand of God. And his great census to keep stock of his subjects failed to recognize that he was God's subject. God was going to restore the king to Israel. Amos 9.11 says this, In that day I will raise up the booth of David, 
that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. You might be thinking, what's going on with the word booth there? Well, a booth in Hebrew is a small stall, a dwelling and often a dwelling that you put animals in. Interesting term. The irony is that the traffic and mayhem caused by Augustus' census meant that Mary and Joseph were forced into a little booth to raise up a descendant of David. How amazing is that? God is sovereign. He is sovereign over history in such a way that seemingly unrelated events converge to bring about his will perfectly. Christ was born in Bethlehem. And at this stage, it seemed like he was born without any acknowledgement. But that wasn't going to last for very long. God is not done yet. Leads me to my second point, the king born of heaven. Let's get into it. Verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom with, uh, with whom he is pleased. So we start with some shepherds. Man, I've got my work cut out for me here, don't I? <laughs> and these shepherds are keeping watch over their flocks at night. Now, you've got to understand, Bethlehem is about 800 metres in elevation. It is pretty high up there. You know, it's higher than Canberra, and Canberra gets pretty cold. And right in the middle of winter, it would often snow. And so for the shepherds to be out there at night with their flock just, just didn't happen. That's just not what happens at that time. Shepherds would watch their flocks at night, really between late April and early November, which means we don't really know when Christ was born. We know he probably wasn't born on December 25th, but he was probably born within this window. The Bible never really tells us when he is born, but the church has decided December 25th is the time we're going to set aside to celebrate Christ's birth. You know what? That's good enough for me. Who am I to question the traditions of the church? So we worship the birth of Jesus, but we know that he wasn't born on this day. He would have been born on another day, and that's totally fine. But here are a few shepherds, they're keeping watch at night, when suddenly an angel appears out of nowhere. And the brilliant Shekinah glory of heaven comes cascading down in their presence. And the text tells us they are filled with a great fear. Literally in Greek, they feared a great fear. Luke is trying to get across to us the level of fear that these men were feeling at that moment. This reaction is common, really, whenever sinful men encounter the glory and holiness of any angelic or heavenly being. The disciples, we remember, when they were standing in front of Christ's glory on the Mount of Transfiguration and His uh, blazing white light was coming to them and they were just filled with great fear. Or, or Paul, on his way to Damascus, he's thrown to the ground and struck blind. We remember John in Revelation, he falls as a dead man when he's confronted with the risen Jesus. Because when heaven breaks through into our reality, it is something that just breaks our brains. It breaks our mind. And we don't have the capacity to comprehend what is occurring. 
And every time this happens, without a shadow of a doubt, the first words out of that heavenly being is what? Fear not. Fear not. Every single time, fear not. Because they're there for a reason and they have something important to do. So come on, humans, get over your brain being broken and pay attention. There is good news. News of great joy for all the people. A son has been born in Bethlehem, the city of David, a saviour who is the Messiah and Lord of all. And this will be your sign, a baby in Shem swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. That last sentence must have stunned those shepherds. Stunned all you guys. No, I'm just messing with you. Here is the radiant glory of an angel proclaiming to them that the king is born in obscurity, born into a feeding trough with only cloths to bundle him up. And they wouldn't have had much time to think about that before something even more terrifying would occur because that angel was not alone. He was then to be met with the multitude of the host of God. He was going to be met with the heavenly army. When that word host shows up in the Bible, it means army. That's what that word means. And they came and they praised God and they said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The angels are just overjoyed at this news. They respond with praise, which really is the only rightful response to what is occurring. Because angels, we know from elsewhere in scripture, have longed to look into these things. Angels have wanted to know how God was going to do it. And in this moment to them was confirmed the goodness and glory of God in bringing his son to earth. They were just as shocked almost as the shepherds were. It's quite amazing. Peace has finally come. But it has come to those with whom God is pleased. It has come to Jesus' people. It has come to the people that will recognize this king. And only those who recognize this king. And the shepherds were going to be the first to taste this. And these simple shepherds, living out in the field, barred from high society, treated as lonely peasants, were the men that God had chosen to reveal his newborn son. They were going to be witnesses to this amazing king, born of heaven, heralded by an entire army of angels. And this king would be so different to the king that had just sent them to the city. See, God often operates in ways that are just completely contrary to our expectations. Completely contrary to what we expect Him to do. And we see these shepherds and we ask, why? Why these men? No one else saw Jesus that night. You may in the nativity scene see some wise men. They don't come to like a couple of years later. The shepherds were the ones who were God's witnesses of this event. They were the ones who God chose to witness this. Why? A lot of ink has been spilled by theologians over that question. I'm going to give you my thoughts on it. Bethlehem is just down the road from Jerusalem. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem today in Israel, Bethlehem is basically a suburb of the city now. That's how close it was. And in the city of Jerusalem was the temple. And at that temple, thousands of animals were being sacrificed every single year. And so where are all these animals going to come from? We know where these animals came from. Bethlehem. It was the place where the sacrifices would come. Which means that these shepherds who were tending their flocks late at night were not raising their flocks necessary for wool. They weren't raising their flocks for meat. They were raising them as sacrifices to be given in the temple. And so God chose these men 
who live their entire lives raising up sacrifices to see his sacrificial lamb, to come see his sacrifice that he had risen up, the one who would save them, the one who would bring them peace. Jesus, the lamb of God, who was slain before the foundation of the world. The king born in the city of David, Bethlehem, the place where sacrifices come from. It's amazing. Shepherds would soon gaze upon this baby boy, God's sacrificial lamb. With every seeming coincidence that we see in Luke's account, we just notice the sheer brilliance and wisdom of God. It's untold eternal wisdom throughout all the ages in converging all of these events into this one moment, Jesus' birth. Every word, every page of scripture drips with meaning and all of those drips point to Jesus, the center of all human history. Brings me to my third point, the king born to reign. Let's keep reading. Verse 15. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. As soon as the light of the angels came in, which kind of like exploded into these shepherds' existence, they went out. It's like the light turning on, turning off. They disappear and the shepherds are left to look at each other and kind of take stock of what has just occurred in front of them. And they're looking around and they're asking each other, what are we going to do? What's going to happen? And it's obvious. Let's go. There is their flock that they've been tending at night. What do they do with that flock? Well, they do what any good follower of God does. They leave it behind. And they go and they find this baby boy. They follow the angel's directions. And they might, be, they might have just been like jumping in on every stable. No baby in here. Find another one. I mean, I'm not sure what it looked like. But they're hustling over. They're running. The ver- Luke says that they went with haste. Like the disciples hustling over to the empty tomb. They searched the city of Bethlehem and they found this baby just as the angels had said. And they immediately tell Joseph and Mary what they'd seen and heard. And you can imagine Joseph and Mary at this point were just exhausted. They've had this enormous trip. They'd just given birth to a baby. But yet, this was no ordinary night. And this was welcome news from those shepherds. In fact, Mary pondered all these things. She treasured them up. She was exhausted, but to her, there were things of wonder. Amazing. The shepherds do what any sane person would do. They leave, and as they leave, they glorify and praise God. Finally, that king, the king they'd been waiting for for so long, he's come, he's going to rebuild the house of David. He's born into the city of Bethlehem. We see this new king, a new David, And unlike David, who had gone before, his lineage would not collapse. His kingship would not collapse. He wouldn't raise up as a king that does justice and then commits evil and then he finds his whole kingship just fall into nothing. This king would succeed where David had failed before. 
And in this passage, really, it's just a tale of two kings. We have on one hand the Emperor Augustus. We have on one hand the emperor who was born into nobility, wealth, power, and prestige, keeping stock of his enormous empire in this great census. And then you contrast that with another king who was born, Jesus. Born into humiliation, born into poverty, born into shame, visited by some lowly shepherds. And we know that he is no ordinary man because as the angels proclaim, he is the king and the king born of heaven. And just like Augustus would take stock of his people, Jesus likewise would take and bring peace among those with whom his father is well pleased. Emperor Augustus would command men to go die for him. He was well known for that. He fought many campaigns. King Jesus would go on one campaign, alone, up that mountain, and die as the sacrificial lamb from Bethlehem. And with the line that the angel said, for unto you was born this day in the city of David a saviour who is Christ the Lord, Augustus Caesar suddenly found himself out of a job because there is a new king in town. And when kings find out about this new king, they feel threatened. We remember Herod, right? Herod the Great, his name was. Gotta love these titles they give themselves. Herod the Great. He finds out that there are these wise men, these magi looking for a new king. What does he do? When they trick him, he goes and murders every baby boy in Bethlehem under the age of two to try to get Jesus because the rulers know that his kingship spells trouble for them. Rulers like Augustus, who murdered 300 senators, and Herod, who murdered baby boys, show us the reality about rulers in their age and ours, that they will hang on to their power jealously. They will hang on to their power with tight fists. They are very aware of any challenge to their rule and authority. It's like they've got a scanner, a radar, they can pick it up at 100 meters. They fully understand the threat that this King Jesus poses to them, their rule, and their way of life. This is just obvious to us, right? This is why North Korea, the Bible, is just banned. They don't, they don't want Jesus to come in and challenge their authority. The Bible is heavily censored in China. These tyrannical countries know that if Christ is king, then they must bend the knee too. And they do not want to bend the knee to Jesus. And often we go wrong as conservative Christians who believe the Bible and want to bring God's word to people. We go wrong as Christians when we downgrade the the kind of kingship of Christ. We downplay it until he really, he's just kind of the spiritual king of heaven that when we die, we go to his kingdom. But uh, look, it's not really here. It's not really something that's tangible. It's just something that's up there. It's spiritual. It's ethereal. Really? He's the king of all. He is born to reign. The New Testament countlessly refers to Christ as the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus makes it clear. He says, all authority in where? Heaven and on earth. It's like we somehow put our fingers in our ears every time the word earth shows up. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Then we move on to verse 2. Go therefore 
We go because the first thing is true. We go because the first thing is correct. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. See, Christians, we go so wrong in our evangelism. It's, you know, when we were, some of you guys, Cessnock, I'm not sure about Singleton, did you guys have an election recently, like a couple of weekends ago? Yeah, you show up and there's all those really annoying people with the liberal label, Labour green shirts and the hand, trying to hand out flyers. Well, they weren't allowed to do it this time, but they were all yelling at me, vote Labour, vote Greens. And I was like, nah, I'm, I'm good, I'm good. Um, and and as, I'm, as I'm rolling through, you know, we kind of act like this, don't we? You know, we're like the poll people. And people come by and we're like, get Jesus elected, make him king of the nation. Here, sign this petition. Here, come along. I mean, we're trying to get Christ, uh, Jesus into authority and power, but we're doing it all wrong. Because Jesus, he's not running for prime minister. He is the king. He's not running for president. He already rules the nations. What a foolish thing to do to try to get Jesus elected. He's already in power. The shepherds didn't go around saying, hey guys, we saw this really cool baby that was in a manger. Why don't we make that baby king? They didn't say that. They said, this day a king has been born. A king born in Bethlehem. And when Christ tells us to go make disciples of the nations, he's not telling us to go and make him king of those nations. He's telling us that he already is king of those nations. Go and declare his rule. Go and declare his praises because no decree can restrain him. No law can stop him. No army can stand against him and no empire can possibly outlive him. Don't take my word for it. You just look at the broad plane of history and you see only one Thing. Christ is King. In the first verse of our passage today, Augustus Caesar makes a decree. It reminded me of a different decree made long ago in Psalm 2. Verse 7, let's read. I will tell of the decree. It's a different one from the Lord. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Does that sound like our evangelistic method, message? Because this is the decree that has come forth from God in heaven. This Christmas season, we should recognize that every time we say Merry Christmas, for every Christmas tree we decorate, for every Christmas light we put up and every present we give to our family, it is not mere tradition. Every act is a declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord and he has been born in history And anyone with ears to hear will know that we are celebrating the most powerful political event in the history of the world. Rulers do well to fear Christmas. The rulers of Christ's age didn't like it, and the rulers of our age don't like it either. Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that is our message. Kiss the Son lest He be angry. We will proclaim that message until our dying day. Revelation 17, 14. Just in case you're worried about how this is going to turn out, let's have a look. 
They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and those with Him are called faithful, uh, sorry, are called and chosen and faithful. So this is our call this Christmas season. Be chosen, be faithful to this King. Proclaim His birth this Christmas. And remember that what we celebrate today is the moment that the world changed forever. And when Christ's kingship entered this world. Let's pray. Father, how sad it is when our message is lacking in faith. When we try to get you elected as if somehow we can put you in any sort of power, Lord. Jesus, you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And what a travesty when churches preach that you need us. What a travesty when churches preach that you're desperate for us. Because we read in Psalm 2, Lord, that you will break the nations with a rod of iron. You will break them in pieces. Father, your heart doesn't break for us, but Lord, you break our hearts for you. And so, Father, I pray that we would be a church that proclaims the kingship and lordship of Christ, not as mere lip service, but as a real reality, that we begin first with our own household and with ourselves, that we bring all of our lives underneath your rule and reign, because we know over this Christmas season that a baby was born in Bethlehem, and that baby is king of all. Father, I pray for my friends here who have struggled and fallen into all sorts of sin and have loved things more than you. Father, I pray that they would find a place of repentance over this Christmas period, that they would love you with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Father, would our church be known as a church that resides under your kingship and reign, and Lord, that we can bring this message to the nations and disciple them and teach them to observe all the things that you have commanded to us. We thank you, Lord. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.